and welcome to Being Epic, a podcast where we take honest conversations to a new level. I'm Julieta, your host, and my guests and I are here to remove filters, stigmas, and insecurities and create a collective energy of being vulnerable, of being honest, and of sharing each other's epic ideas. We give you culture, knowledge, and inspiration by shining a spotlight on personal journeys so we can adapt our opinions and perspectives and let go of restraints. But before we get started, you can find Being Epic on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, Breaker, and Anchor, where you can hit subscribe and or leave a review, which I highly encourage you to do so because the podcast needs some new listeners. Plus, I love reading your reviews, so keep them coming. My guest today is Abby Oyepitan. I'm so sorry if I butchered that. She is best known as being a British Olympic athlete, as well as co-founder of Liha Beauty, which she founded with her friend, Liha. The two of them have wanted to do something together for years and finally found the right project for them, with Abby being more interested in and more passionate about hair care, and Liha more intrigued by skincare. So the combination became what we now see as Liha Beauty. I can highly recommend their Edan oil and Shea butter. The smell is absolutely magical. I'm not kidding. You can just sniff the bottle of the oil all day long. It's, oh, there's nothing like it. And it's helped me out with my dry skin and scalp like no other product. Not kidding. This is not sponsored by any means. Abby and I talked about changing careers, the ups and downs of being self-employed, the world of sports, how she became an athlete, her heritage and how that impacted her upbringing, racial injustice and seeing a correlation to her business growing through that, mental health and as always so much more. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Abby. Hi Abby. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Can't complain. How are you? I'm good. Um, how are you managing with the second lockdown? Um, it's not too bad. It's not, you know, we know what to expect, I suppose. The first lockdown mm-hmm. was um, was intense and, you know, scary and nobody knew what was going on. The second lockdown, um, not so, you know, we've been here before. So right. it, it's my daughter's a nursery. So not like she's not with me 24-7, which is mm-hmm. great um so yeah it's been okay and how has it been running a business during a pandemic yeah that was really scary um Mm. yeah so when you know when it first happened we had an office in um just outside london in high wickham um we had our one and only employee and obviously we you know we're, we're all on you know Lehigh and I were on payroll and and most of our revenue came from um, wholesale so mm. though we had a direct consumer business it's not something we had focused on although 2020 was when we were really going to really focus on that and try and drive more revenue through that channel but um, yeah so it was really scary and you know stock is kind of like obviously shut down and all just mm. coming and we had this office. We only just moved in in January, mm-hmm. um, and we had a studio. Yeah, so it was just yeah, it was very um, it was very scary, and we just um, got a freelance social media person. So yeah, it was very scary. So we literally had to cut everything. Um, so we had to furlough our employee and um, wasn't yeah, and get rid of our office. 
because we weren't going to be using it. And mm-hmm. um, that took some time because we, you know, it was empty. We still had to pay for it, it though our landlord was very, you know, he was very helpful and he was very understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was really scary. Um, and just you know, not knowing what was going, what's, what's going to happen with the business because, I, as I said, our kind of wholesale was what you know what was what <laughs> was more of our business than um, direct consumer. Right. Let's backtrack a little. Um, how did you come about creating Liha with Liha? <laughs> yeah, so Liha is my business partner. We named mm. the business after her. So um, yeah, so we I'd, I've known Liha for over 20 years. We went to university together. Mm. Um, skincare wasn't, I'm not a skincare, I wasn't a skincare junkie. I still am not. Liha <laughs> Yeah, Liha is a total skincare junkie, a bit less than she used to be, but um, she used to work for Space and K, um, Body Shop, um, when it was still owned by Nita Roddick and all that kind of thing. So she was really into skincare. I was more into hair care. Mm-hmm. So I would make my own like hair mask and, you know, conditioners and stuff with my sister because I had no. I had natural hair and uh, Liha and I, because um, when we met at university 20 years ago and we were like one of the only girls that had natural hair. So I, we both had this massive Afro mm-hmm. and that kind of, we saw, and we just used to see each other around campus and we kind of like, you know, Oh, we've got some, you know, something different. So that kind of, um, and we became friends through that and um, just making it. And I would just make, you know, talk about what we were doing, making our own hair care products. And I'd show how, you know, what I was using and then um, after university, I became, I used to be an athlete. So I used to run for Great Britain. Right. Um, I'm a yeah, two-time Olympian. I went to yeah, two Olympics, went to Commonwealth Games. And Leha moved back to Cheltenham. She had a daughter and she was running a business with her ex-husband. But we'd always be talking, because I traveled a lot, we'd always be talking about the new products I was picking up when I was traveling and things like that. And we always talked about setting up something, but I was always busy and she was, you know, she was like, I was living in London and she was outside London. And then when I retired, she was winding down her business. And then we thought, why don't we do something in like hair skincare or skincare? And we were just dabbling and making stuff. Um, And one of my pet peeves when I was traveling was I always had, take so many different products I wanted one like multi-purpose natural product that I can use for you know could use for absolutely everything so we started working on what is now our cult product our Edan oil and um and like lots of people loved it like our family and friends loved it and people were saying we should start a business and we'll start you know start selling it and we weren't really sure because we only had that product and we started thinking about maybe introducing the sh- our shape well the shea butters like mm-hmm. i grew up using shea butter my parents are both nigerian lehad stars nigerian and um but lots of people didn't know what shea butter was and it was kind of Leha's idea and said why don't we just introduce shea butter as well as the edan oil mm-hmm. and there was two types of shea butters one from nigeria one from ghana and so um, we've been talking about it for ages. <laughs> we started and we weren't doing anything about it. Um, so we decided to uh, do a festival called Port Elliot Festival. Leha had set, um, had done it with her other business. It's a literary festival mm-hmm. in Somerset. Um, so she was like, why don't we pay pay down for this and it kind of put us you know timeline on we need to get everything ready get like our branding ready get our packaging you know and just get some feedback on from real life customers rather than just our family and friends basically Mm -hmm. 
and so um that um i think we paid that down let's say in like february and the festival was in july mm-hmm. so we just gave us time and a deadline to put everything together and so we went to this festival and we decided to do workshops showing people how to make their own like whip up, just what we used to do in our kitchens just whip up shea butter um using kitchen ingredients mm-hmm. and just kind of entice people in um, and that's how it got started, really. So we did that. We were showcasing our Edan ore, and it was just really a kind of, it wasn't even a launch. It was really just to get feedback on like our branding packaging, whether this was actually a go and people were into it. And so we were doing a series of workshops and Anthropology had a tent two doors down from us. They had this massive tent with lots of different workshops and lots of the girls that were working on the stand would come to our tent and come to our workshops and um, the head of anthropology Europe came to our um, to our tent, and she was like, "I love this. The girls have been talking about it, so I wanted she wanted to come over and see what we were doing. And she loved the oil, and she was like, "I want to sell this oil in anthropology." And we we're like, "Okay." And uh, she was like, "Have you got all your EU testing?" And we we're like, "Lehar's always like, yes, yes, yes." And I was sitting because I was like, "I don't even know what this woman's talking about." Um, Leha is always like we say yes and we figure out (laughs) or Google and figure out later so we said yes and she was like oh great Um, and then she we then figured out that we didn't have well we didn't have IE testing and it takes months it takes um, what was it It takes three months to do your stability testing your MSDS testing whatever and so um, but anthropology was really understanding and they realised we you know we just we hadn't even set up a real business at that point and they put us in the following summer so they gave us like a whole kind of nine months to get our stuff together and um yeah they put us in this and we did a bunch of workshops at their um shops um and yeah and that's how we really got started basically i I, that was a bit of a ramble i'm sorry (laughs) all good um what was important to you when you wanted to create this company? Like, what was the message that you intended to have and deliver? Um, what was your kind of manifesto for it? So uh, we, we, I wouldn't say we had a manifesto. One of the things were really was really important to us was that we wanted to kind of showcase the kind of um, biodiversity, the amazing things that came out of um, West Africa, like primarily West Africa, Nigeria, Mm. that's where we're from, and kind of merge that, those two cultures of us being British and um, and Nigerian, and that was something that was really important to us. Um, And also it being natural, and I hate the word clean, but clean um, and sustainable and you know, just talk about the kind of diversity that comes out of um, of Africa. Um, you know, you see all the kind of negative connotations there and we wanted to show, you know, we just wanted to see, like, show people that amazing things happen and amazing, you can get amazing regions, amazing bases. And that was something that was really important to us um, at the beginning. We didn't have, like, you know, we didn't have a massive plan Mm-hmm. Didn't think it was going to be you know I just I just retired from athletics Leha was winding down her business and it for me it was something that it was such a, a huge transition from coming out of being a uh, full-time athlete for like 12 years and I wasn't sure what I was going to do so it was something that gave me like a new focus and drive so I didn't you know I didn't Leha would say something different but I didn't think it was going to be a 
business <laughs> so mm-hmm. big, I thought it was more going to be like a side thing that was fun and interesting and different from what I what um you know what I did previously um so but one of the things that was really important to us and was really important to me because of being an athlete and being about you know what I was putting into my body and what I was putting into my skin was that being natural and uh, you know as clean as possible um and multi-purpose and sustainable um that was something that was important to me um yeah I would say um you mentioned being an athlete how has being an athlete made you cope with challenges and failure now that you're running your own business um I think it's you know people yeah get that ask that question often it's it's really athlete athletics taught me so much I had so many so many failures or challenges um that anything else now at this point is kind of I wouldn't say it's it easy, but I've got the kind of resilience um, and the kind of mindset that you have to have as an athlete that you build up that I, I can't pretty much take into the business and take into every aspect of my life. Because, you know, you're so focused. You're so focused on one thing. I was a sprinter and all you're, all you're trying to do is knock off like 0.0, you know, seconds off your time, you know, and and you're constantly doing the same things over and over again. And there's so many different things you you go through, as, you know, like injuries and everything else, that when it when you kind of transfer those kind of skills into like real life, so to speak, um, you're able, you've got the mental capacity and understanding to kind of like, you, to kind of go through it and, um, and yeah, come out of it, basically, I would say. Mm. What was your biggest setback during that time? Uh, being an athlete when I was yeah. an athlete. Oh yeah. god. Um so I I made the 2004 Olympic final for the 200 meters and then um so I, I that year I was ranked the sixth fastest woman in the world for 200 meters and then I didn't compete again for 6 years mm-hmm. because of injury. Um so yeah so yeah I would say that was the biggest challenge mental challenge of my life you know and you you come there's lots of huge there's huge mental health issues in sport um that don't get diagnosed or don't get but I think it's definitely different now um but yeah so I I would definitely say I suffered a lot from that but I was very I was very fortunate I had great like I had a psychologist and I had a great coach and generally just a great team and yeah and so you kind of go through that so I think for me yes you know from you know as a young person going through kind of those mental challenges um and mental health issues I think now I can pretty much you know take anything really (laughs) take anything really yeah nothing's that nothing's such nothing's like too it's, nothing as bad as it was when I was an athlete this is like for me this is a walk in the park when people say oh, this is hard work I'm like gosh try being an athlete not even the physical thing it's the mental mm. the mental that you know up and down you, you you go through as an athlete um it's crazy this is nothing this is like you know this is easier I I, I relish coming you know doing my work every day why do you think mental health is such a taboo subject in general not just in sports particularly I think I think you just don't it's that vulnerability that nobody Mm. wants to show 
and you know being an athlete especially being a sprinter I know I actually do you know what it's not just sprinters it's all athletes um I'm going to reference athletics but it kind of translates to every aspect of life mm-hmm. it's showing your vulnerability showing and being a sprinter you know you know male, you know male or female it's about bravado it's about being the strongest being the fastest you know what I mean you can take anything but <sighs> It's yeah, and nobody wants to show that actually it's not it's it's hard, and you have to be willing to kind of open your heart and talk about all the kind of issues you you face, and it's and ha- it's showing that vulnerability and showing that you're soft, um, which you know, being an athlete, it's like you have to be hard, you have to be strong, you know, just think of the words we use. You have to be strong, you have to be powerful. Mm. You don't talk about being soft and being, um, you know, or weak, you know, that's seen as a weakness. Um, yeah, but if I went through it, we, you know, um, and I know lots of athletes, and now they're kind of coming to the forefront and talking about it. And, um, and but then it, it translates to it translates to all aspects of our lives. The way you talk to your children, you know, stop. You know, my, I remember my brother-in-law talking to my nephew. He's still he's saying to him, "Man up." you know, to stop being a crime mm. baby. Mm-hmm. These kind of words we use to kids and especially to boys as well. It's it's so damaging and it's kind of, and they, you know, they take it all through life and it's like, you know, they have to be strong. They have to, you know, man up all these. Yeah. So I think that's these, the language we use, we need to be so careful about. It's interesting because in sports, you have to be mentally strong in order yeah. to overcome your barriers. Yeah. Um, so how did you overcome those mental challenges that you were having? Do you know, I, I don't even know. Cause when I, <laughs> when I start to think about it, mm. honestly, it's me- when I, <laughs> somebody said once having children's and me- it's like mental health, but it's, it's being an athlete is constant mental health. And, right. you know, and I think for me, what was good for me as a kid was that I wasn't great. I wasn't, you know, I was a good athlete. Mm-hmm. but um I wasn't as a junior athlete I didn't I didn't um I wasn't the person the kid that um that anybody anybody would have thought oh she's going to be an Olympian one day she's going to be an Olympic finalist or whatever um I was just a kid that loved sport and I you know I loved sprinting I loved athletics and I had a lot of setbacks I never won you know the gold medal I won you know I became third or fourth or whatever um I, I don't I only started competing for Great Britain when I was 18 most of the kids had been competing since they were 15 and stuff and so because I had so many kind of like you know because I wasn't amazing and I wasn't the best that was I wasn't fine with that. I was, I was always pushing myself to be the best and stuff like that. But I think the the people that I see that suffered a lot with mental illness it has, you know, being an athlete was the guys and girls who weren't used to losing, who weren't mm-hmm. used to the setbacks I had encountered as an early, you know, as um, in my early years. Mm-hmm. So when I then started to encounter, and then when I was about 21 and I, I moved coaches when I was 20 and I was, I started to then get really good and, and then I started for like four or five years. My career was amazing. And I, you know, got into Olympic final and blah, blah, blah. And then then I st- encountered, you know, the setbacks I talked about earlier. I think from being a child, being a um, junior and encountering those kind of challenges kind of set me up to mentally be resilient to to go through what I then went through in later life. But saying that, you know, I, as I said, I had really good co- a really great coach, a great team. 
and that really helped me as well um and but the you know the the kind of mental health and the pressure was really coming from me. It wasn't coming from any, any external, you know, my parents couldn't care less. They're African and, you know, they're Nigerian. All they wanted me to be was a doctor and a lawyer. They couldn't understand why I would do any of these things. My dad's like, get a job. Why don't you go use your degree? You know, so I didn't have that pressure from my parents, you know, saying, so it was more the pressure I was putting on myself, um, wanting to be an Olympic champion and things like that. Yeah. Why did you want to become an athlete? Oh, um, because I watched Linford Christie win the Olympic gold medal when I was 10 years old. Mm. And I was like, I want to be, I want to win. <laughs> I want to do that. That's what, that's what I wanted to do. I don't know. It's quite, I would, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a real, to be, to be, to be, to want to be a sportsman person. Mm-hmm. It's a mental health issue. I don't understand why any, when I look at it now, I think to myself, that's crazy. I wouldn't want my child doing this. <laughs> it's absolutely nuts imagine thinking imagine as a 10 year old or you know a 20 year old thinking I'm going to be Olympic champion and to be fair I nearly got there it wasn't (laughs) but really realistically how many people do become Olympic champion but um yeah I don't know I just saw this thing I watched Olympics when I was like 10 or 11 in um Barcelona Barcelona it was a huge thing that you know, it was a massive thing. We had um, amazing athletes and I watched it and I um, and I was doing athletics at school. I think that's where the connection was in athletics at school. And I had this great te- primary school teacher, Mr. Dewitt, who was like, he saw like some talent in me. And then I'd never watched athletics on TV. We only had one TV in the house and my dad always dominated. So I'd never watched athletics on TV. And then because Linford was... Um, was an Olympic final and you had like Sally Gunnell was also an Olympic final and all these great athletes we had and I remember like everybody was sat down the whole country sat down to watch Linford Christie um in this Olympic final and I think that was the first time I'd ever watched athletics on TV and my parents sat me and my sister down to watch and my brother down to watch this Olympic final and um yeah, and then I thought, oh, and I put two and two together. I'm doing athletic school. Okay, I want to be an Olympic champion because <laughs> I could do that. And so that was where it started. And everything I did, you know, all, you know, what, not smoking with my friends, not doing all the stuff, all the terrible stuff my friends were doing, mm. I would say to myself, I want to be Olympic champion. I can't do that. So I don't, yeah, it's crazy what you, what you do at school. Yeah, that was that was it, really. Do you think it took something away from your period of growing up that you were so determined on wanting to be an athlete? Do you think you missed out on anything? I used to, you know, I used to think that, but you know, I had such a great life. I can't even like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I grew up in a council estate. I didn't, you know, you know, rough council estate in Northwest London. Um, I didn't know any athletes. I didn't do much travel. I, you know, I went, to, I saw the world. I met like insane people. I went to, you know, I've done insane things. Um, yeah, like, you know, I missed out on parties and weddings and this and that. But no, I wouldn't change change that for anything. I, the experiences I've had, you know, before, you know, before and after is because of being an athlete. And I think setting up Leha, um was because I was an athlete you know I don't have any fear about doing things like this because you know I've never really worked for anybody I'm like you know I've had I've had times I've had no money and lots of money and blah 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 so I don't have any fear and like um 
on not making it or, you know, on losing everything or that some people or some of my friends have like where they've had the nine to five since, you know, university and things like that. And they, you know, they're used to regular money and paying down, you know, and paying down a mortgage or whatever. I've never had that kind of fear. And so, yeah, I don't know if I would have started Lehigh if I, you know, if I had done, you know, if I went straight from university and just got a nine to five job and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying that I've just seen the kind of, um, difference between me and my friends um, who aren't so willing to d- take those risky things, I suppose. Or, mm. Yeah. What do you fear today? God, what do I fear? Um, I suppose it's, you know, having a child to fear for everything. Um, I don't know. I don't really fear anything. Um, you know, no, I don't really fear anything. I just... just no, I don't. I can't say I fear anything, really. Okay. You said you did some of the most insane things and you've met some of the most insane people. What is the most insane thing you've done and oh, God, the God. most insane person you've met? Oh, that's easy. God, the most insane thing I've done is sailing around Australia. Wow. God, that was, yeah, that was the most insane. <laughs> that, that the other day, God, that I was suicidal on that boat. That was crazy. I sailed. So somebody asked me because I, <laughs> this is the thing. Yeah. So somebody asked me to. Um, there's this thing called the uh, Clip Around the World race, mm-hmm. and where they sail. There's twelve uh, boats, um, massive. I don't know how lot they're like seven. I don't. I don't seventy or hundreds. Of, I don't know. Massive boats, and they sail. Right. They were sailing um, around the world. You know, they're competing against each other to to mm-hmm. sail around the world. And um, and then I got asked to do one of the legs, and so one of the legs is sailing from um, say it comes from so it starts in London. It started in London to mm-hmm. Brazil, Brazil to South Africa, South Africa to Australia, round Australia, and then it goes to like China and all the rest of it. And so I they gave me the options of doing different legs, and I chose Australia because I thought, oh, it's only round a country, because all the other ones was going from one. <laughs> one bit to the other I was like it's only around a country it can't be that hard it'll be quite easy and then I get to stay in Australia so that was my thinking and then um I did like four weeks of tra- I did like uh four weeks of training but it was only like um what was it it was like a couple of a couple of weeks you know it was every weekend for four weeks and I remember the first weekend of training I remember getting off this boat it was horrific it was awful and I <laughs> it was in um what was it it was in um Southampton mm-hmm. and I remember getting off this boat and the PR woman's like oh how was it and I said to her I don't know I don't think I can do this and she was like oh no what do you mean I was like it's hard I thought it'd be really easy I thought I'd be sunning myself on deck and be <laughs> I said this is really hard this is harder than being an athlete I was like honestly you have to do this like four hour four hour on four hour off you have to be oh it's just awful and I and I got and I was like, listen, I said to her, I'm sorry, I don't think I can do this, but I'll be in touch. I drove back to London. I said to my, I was like, I'm not doing this. This, this is just, this is awful. I can't do this. And um, then um, my friends were like, oh, you're going to regret it. It's once in a lifetime opportunity, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. It was it was just awful. And I decided to do it. And then I got to Australia and that was, um, and it was fine. I got to Western Australia. Where was it? I can't remember. Yeah, Western Australia. And then, then we got on this boat and I sailed, I sailed from 
Western Australia to Sydney. Oh my God, it was the most horrific. <laughs> it was so it was. I remember on the sec on the first day, I thought we we're gonna die. I remember screaming because the boat was literally on its side. It was mm-hmm. it was sailing on its side and literally all standing up on this boat. Like yeah, it was just the ocean was crazy. It's, I can't remember what it's called. The it's one of the harshest oceans i didn't even know any of this i didn't do any of my due diligence i didn't read i just thought it was australia it's a country you know it's round it can't it was horrible yeah um and i remember (laughs) sailing i remember getting off this boat in sydney it took yeah yeah getting off this boat and i thought i'm gonna call my brother and i'm gonna tell him to get me a flight out of here i was just getting back I had one oh, hand showered for like 10 days. It was just horrible. And then, um, so I got to my hotel and then, you know, had a shower, slept and all this. And then I, and I thought, oh, it's, and then I was going to be in Australia. I was going to be in Sydney for two weeks. I was going to be there for Christmas and stuff. And I thought, oh, let me just stay here a couple of days longer. It'll be fine. Cause I was supposed to get on the boat, get back on the boat to do, they've got this uh, boat race called, uh, I can't even remember. It's like the Olympics of, of sailing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's from Sydney to Hobart. No, yeah, Sydney. It's called the Sydney to Hobart race. It's an amazing. It's an amazing race. You got you get like every so as as well as the twelve boats who are part of Clipper mm-hmm. um, who are doing this race. There's this like Sydney to Hobart is a massive. Everybody who's who boating comes to do this, and it's like the hundreds. You know, I think it was a boat that was costed a hundred million and whatever. It's a huge race. And it's a, it's on uh, Boxing Day, mm-hmm. and so um, so I said, oh, let me just do this one race, you know, the next race, and it wasn't so bad. The races got easier. <laughs> it was <laughs> the worst. The the first the first race was the worst, but it got. I did get we we did get um, seasick, but it wasn't too bad. Uh, but it was a great. Then it was it was amazing. Um, but yeah, that was the craziest thing I ever did. Um, I would not be, I will not be repeating that. Um, yeah, but yeah, um, I can't remember what the other question was. <laughs> who is the most insane person you've met? Insane person. God, I don't know who the most insane person I've met. Um, I haven't met anybody that was, I can't think you have to, I have to come back to that. I need to think. Okay. That. Yeah. Um, how have you seen your business grow, particularly this year? Yeah. So yeah. So so we started this. Um, yeah. So we had to kind of furlough our um, our first one and only employee, and then um, yeah, it was touch and go. But then once everybody settled in, then we kind of saw increase in um, action on our website, mm-hmm. which was which was good, and then. And it was getting better and we were doing much more kind of um, social media and like uh, CRM stuff and newsletters and stuff like that. And then the then Black Lives, Black Lives Matter kind of happened in America and kind of, and, and then kind of in the interest in that, in that happened in the UK, all around the world, basically. And mm-hmm. we saw an insane increase on traffic to our website mm-hmm. that none of neither of us were prepared for and the only thing that kind of saved us was that we in january we had outsourced our fulfillment 
because mm-hmm. we used to do everything in house. Um, so we had outsourced our fulfillment to a fulfillment company just outside London. And because we, you know, I wouldn't be, you know, I couldn't, I, you know, I'm a single mum with a two year old. There's no way I could have gone to a post office and sent. So we saw a massive increase in, on, um, through, especially in the States, in the UK as well, but especially in the States. Um, and that was, you know, that was just totally unexpected. And, you know, yeah, so that's, and then it's kind of, and it kind of, it's petered, you know, it's petered down or whatever, but but we still see um, it's definitely helped increase awareness of, of us, mm-hmm. which we still kind of benefit from now. Um, and the only thing I think the kind of barrier, I, I think when the black, you know, when it was all kicking off and it was all happening, people were just wanting to support and stuff. Um, in terms of traffic to America now, there's certainly a decrease. And I think, and that we know it's, it's not even, I think we know that it's the barrier to that is shipping. You know, when you're asking somebody to pay, you know, 12 pounds or whatever to ship from mm-hmm. that's, that's, um, and that's something we're going to remedy next year. But yeah. How do you feel about all of it kicking off in the summer in terms of Black Lives Matter? Yeah, Sunday? that was really um, difficult for me. Um, I, I couldn't. I can reconcile myself to that. Like for me, I've got my own personal Instagram. I'm constantly talking about, it's private, but I'm constantly talking about the injustices that we face as black people, not just, Mm. not just in the, in America, but in UK, all around the, you know, all around the world um, that we face, you know, the black people face. And you've seen time and time again, you've seen the police brutality. It's insane to me. Like, what goes on in the states the uh, the brutality the inhumanity I, that you see constant you know i've seen so many videos to, i can't watch it because it desensitizes you as, a, right. as you know you don't you don't see these people as human beings when i see a black guy being you know pulverized by the police for for literally something that you know you could probably just give them a little bit of a warning for them because they're so scared of black <laughs> black people. It, I see my brother, I see my, you know, I see my nephew, I see my dad in that, you know what I mean? You know, you're black, you're black, just because he's a black man in America doesn't mean I, I can't, you know, I see that. But I see him as a human being, not just that, anyway. So for me, when it all kicked off, I literally switched off. I literally, and I, to, to, to be fair on Lee she had to take the majority of, um, of um, the kind of um, work, the load, because I was like, I can't mentally take this. And and it was bittersweet to me to see like the increase in traction on our on our socials and on on our website because I'm like, it took that for somebody for people, mm-hmm. and and it's not you know it's hard it's hard to yeah for me it's really hard to reconcile that. And I'm like I'm constant I was constantly shouting about this you know all the time um and it doesn't matter and from what what I had to you know my parents being Nigerian or being African they're all about education it's all about speaking well you know even though I went I grew up in a council estate I went to good school which was like took two hours for me and my sister get to get to every day mm. because they wanted to have you know they wanted us to have the best education to they were like education 
will get you out of you know poverty or whatever and you excel and all this kind of stuff and I see time and it's like that doesn't make any it doesn't matter how well you speak you know how articulate you are or what job you have it makes no difference and you know you're constantly having to you know as a black person anywhere living in the west you're constantly having to have two kind of faces you 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 know the way you speak the way you talk and constantly have to dumb down who you are just in case people kind of assign you oh you're angry black person you're this you're that and I've been very fortunate I can't say that I've experienced that very much because I've never worked and I've never worked in that kind of corporate or an office environment so I went you know I was in a sport where it's you know half and half black and white so I didn't experience you know the kind of race microaggressions or the race you know the racism that some of my friends my sisters and stuff have experienced um and I've been very and I saw so I've been very quite naive about it in that sense um but yeah it certainly happened so for me like I found it really hard to to kind of be happy or you know be excited about the kind of increase in revenue or increase in social media and like the shout shout out and stuff like that so um and for me it's 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 very it's yeah it's very difficult to kind of digest I can only imagine because it it like you said it doesn't make sense that it had to take the murder of George Floyd and all of what came after to raise awareness for black owned businesses and to show the support to them yeah yeah I think for also what I realized is that Lehan and I probably were naive about like how much support we weren't getting Mm -hmm. (laughs) in compared to our um to our kind of white counterparts and how many like um stockists had said no to us and all of a sudden they said yes to us and I'm like what has changed between if we weren't a fit then why we're fit now like what's Mm -hmm. going on I you know what I mean like I'm sure your customer base hasn't changed so um so that was quite interesting to see um yeah what was the biggest surprise to you during that time what in, what, what can, can you in, in terms of types of clients that would all of a sudden be interested or um the the any person that stood out to you that was giving you massive support that you weren't expecting or you were surprised no. about I it was it was just more for me it was more a few of the stockists that we had reached out to has said to us oh you know we're not looking for you you know you're you're not great you know you're not a fit at this point and it's not I don't know whatever their their kind of explanation was why they wouldn't take us on as as stockists and then uh, you know recently just after summer that you know coming back to us and saying actually now you know or just after the whole thing kicked off um yeah would love to take you on you know and and what was quite funny one of the particular stockists who had said no to us and we're not a fit for them or they had said we're not a fit for them or something and they've ordered quite a number of times reordered quite a number of times and the and the you know the um, products are doing well so I'm I'm not quite sure what the difference before and after was. Um, but yeah, that's just... And I don't know if that's race um, or or what. You, you know, I'm not going to say everything's racial because it, it, it isn't. 
but we are, um, you know, if you see on our socials, I, in our socials, we are now even more so doubling down on the fact we are black owned. We've never shied away from it, even though I was very, I was very, unlike Leha, I was very nervous about that about talking you know showcasing that we are a black brand and it's quite funny when I've spoken I'm on a whatsapp group with um some other black owned brand not just uh, you know um businesses and stuff and that's something they've always shied away from some of them have said that they haven't seen they hadn't seen traction from from their online or sales during you know a whole kind of Black Lives Matter and stuff, and it's because they hadn't showcased they were a black-owned brand. Mm. Lee Hart and I have always done that, and I've been very nervous about that because historically we've been told that you know blacks, you know black brands don't sell, or black people don't sell, or black people have got terrible customer service. You know, we do it in our own communities, not just white people. We do we say it to each other mm-hmm. and these kind of things. So we were very I was very nervous. Leha it was Leha's never nervous about so I grew up in London where, you know, it's very multicultural. You hear all these kind of negative connotations about black people. Leha grew up in Cheltenham where she was the only her family were the only black family. And so she was so much more vocal about being black and being pro-black than I have ever been, mm-hmm. um, which is quite it's quite a contradiction. But anyway, um, so I was I was very nervous about that. But um, the the more we've done it, is the more support we get. And the fact is, skin skin, um, and it doesn't matter if you're black or white. Shea butter will work for you, <laughs> and that's the thing. You know, we're not talking about hair. We're talking about something that you know I can have the same skin, you know, dry oily skin as a white person. It makes no difference. So, um, so yeah, so that's something that now we're, I'm like doubly, I, you know, I double down on the fact we're black, we're African, we're showcasing the amazing kind of things that come out and people and history and culture comes out, they've come out from West Africa, primarily Nigeria. So, um, and we want that to be known to the world because all people know about is, you know, Ethiopia, famine and stuff like that which is like it's you know that's not that's not the all there is um but yeah why were you nervous about showcasing that you're a black owned business i don't know i think also it's the internal racism that you you know that um that you internalize as a child and internalize that you don't even aware of it it's like you know you know, black people can be just <laughs> as um, discriminatory and uh, self-loathing about themselves, and that's because historically we've been told, you know, we're we're lazy, we're this, we're that, and you know, and then it becomes intergeneration, and you just and it seeps into your own, to your own psyche, to your own way of thinking, and so you know wherever you go you hear like you know black you know black businesses are rude black people is unprofessional you know all these things mm-hmm. and um and that's what we say to you know we've said to each other but these are all lies I've you know I've never and black people don't support each other in terms of uh buying black and all this and I would say pre um the whole black lives matter we that has been totally untrue I've never seen so much support from black women um, ever in, you know, they've supported our business from day dot. 
but in saying that our um our customer base is i would say 70 percent white white women um and i've seen you know white women will buy even if you show black women you know using the products and and it's an education and it's an education piece and we just have to educate our customer that just because it's a black woman in the picture or in the video using doesn't mean it's not going to work on your skin and so I was, my fear came from the fact I felt like white women wouldn't buy or white, you know, white, black, you know, whatever, wouldn't buy our products if they, if they saw it was black women, you know, you know, it was a black owned brand. Um, and if we showcase white, uh, black women using the products. Um, but it's so crazy to me to even think that. But because my whole life, all I've seen is use, all I've done is using products that been that have been demonstrated by white women. I've never thought that way. I've never thought, oh, that's just for white women. I've just, I've just, I've just used it. Mm. So it's that, it's that thing. Um, you know, it's and I think it's just in, you know, it's the internalized racism as that I've I've grown up with, um, and you know, trying to unpick and unlearn that and um, and that kind of inner dialogue I have with myself. And yeah, and it's um, it's historical. It's intergenerational. It's something that you know I'm gonna unlock, you know, and sh- try and ensure my daughter doesn't have. Um, but yeah, you grew up and you were born in London. Um, yeah. Were your parents? Did they immigrate, or did the, their parents? Um... So my dad came as a student. I don't know how old he's probably in his early twenties. Mm-hmm. My mum came when she was about thirteen um uh but yeah they're both born in nigeria i came i was me me and my siblings were born here but when i was one and my sister was two we moved back to nigeria um until i was about six or seven mm-hmm. um but i've lived here ever since and how did your culture affect your upbringing oh my parents like my dad's very nigerian he's they're just a typical they're typical like Nigerian parents that, you know, especially my dad, because he came here much later. He, you know, it's all about education and about, you know, excelling in that way. Um, you know, my, my, my household is very, you know, very Nigerian from the food we ate, from like our cult, you know, the things we watched culturally about respect and, and things like that. So it was just, yeah, it's a very Nigerian household. It wasn't any different from, you know, other you know, Nigerian families that I, that I knew. And when you came back to London and you went to school, did you experience any racial injustice or did you feel out of place? Weirdly, um, when I, um, so when me and my sister moved back to London, um, we went to school on the council estate that we grew up, um, that we Mm -hmm. were living in. And it was, it was like, I would say it was like 90% black. And it was an absolute culture shock because it was such an awful school. Okay. It was such an awful school. It was this. It was the first time. So I, you know, grew up in Nigeria from from age of one to six, and um, I used to get. It was when they still had corporal punishment. You'd still be be- beaten and stuff like that. So I, I'm left-handed. Mm-hmm. It's very like this is a cultural. This is a very cultural thing. Um, you shouldn't. They don't believe that you should be writing with your left hand, so they would make me write with my right hand. And if I would try and write with my left hand, I used to get smacked with a paddle on my knuckle. Um, so um, 
but that was not the norm to me. So okay. yeah, it's very like we went to school that was very disciplined. Kids were very like we wore uniform. We you know we did like we'd be in the playground. We'd all line up and we'd I think we'd march and sing. And it's very like structured discipline. <laughs> and then I went to this school. Came to London. Went to this school in um, my council estate. And the kids. It was something out of a. It was like a zoo. I'd never experienced anything. <laughs> I was so. School was, it was, so it was the first time I'd ever seen a kid, this kid called William had been, had washed, um, the t- he was, he would swear a lot. Mm-hmm. And the teacher got soap and washed his mouth out with soap. And that was so shocking to me because even though I grew up in a, in a culture where you smack your, you know, school, I'd never seen anything like, it stayed with me. I even remember the guy's name because I was so shocked. Mm. Like six years old, I was so shocked that a teacher would do something like this. Um, and we'd all sit, they had to sink in, I don't know why they would, they had to sink in the class and he'd just wash his mouth out with soap. And then the kids, it was just the most unruly school. And um, my sister, we'd only in that school for like two or three months. And my sister got bullied by some kid and she had really bad asthma and she had a massive asthma attack. And that, and that was the last time we went to that school. Mm-hmm. And um, then my my mum took us to school, oh, which we had previously, so before we went to that school, we had previously went to this school, which was like two hours away. And it was, it was a school in Harrow, in Harrow World. Um, but we, yeah, we'd moved out of there and moved to this council estate. Anyway, um, so she took us back to that school and it took us, uh, me and my sister would take three buses to get to school every day. So mind you, I was probably about six, seven, and my sister was, she's a year and a half older than me. Um, my mum showed us how to do it like a couple of times and she made friends with the, some of the bus drivers and then we would have to do that from the age of like six seven every day and get up super early to go to school and the school was very um it was it was diverse in a way that it had lots of Asian kids mm-hmm. and white and it was half Asian and half, I would know it's probably more white than Asian but I was like the only no I think I was, yeah, there were some black kids, but not very many. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't, I didn't feel, I felt different in that there wasn't many black kids, but I didn't feel like, I didn't, I didn't have any racial issues, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, same with my high school. I wouldn't say there was any, even though it wasn't diverse with black kids, it was diverse enough because it had like, you know, Asian kids and stuff. So I wouldn't say I had any kind of felt, I always felt like an outsider, but I think that was typical teenage or thing and not feeling right and also growing up in a council state everybody else lived in that area and stuff Mm. and we we, you know we lived in a really bad you know you know nobody was going two hours to get to school and stuff so I think feeling kind of out of sorts for that I think Mm. rather than race I would say you decided to go to university and study politics and human and social rights yeah um what made you decide on those majors so I um I actually wanted to be a lawyer, but then um, I was going to study law, and but I didn't get my, was it? I didn't get my history A level, and so I had the choice of repeating my history A level or and I but all my friends were going to university, and I was like I don't want to repeat it. So I started decided to do politics. I studied politics at A level, and I got like a B or whatever. So I thought I'd do politics, and um and then I had always and then yeah. And I studied sociology as well. So I thought I'll do politics and sociology. Mm-hmm. And then I had, um, and then I decided after that, I decided to do, I was going to do a conversion and do law. 
Mm-hmm. I did a module on human rights um, at, univer- at, at university and I loved it. So I decided to do an MA because I was, then I became a full-time athlete after university. I got sponsored mm-hmm. by LS, but I, I had more time on my hands and I was like, I can't just sit around and not be doing anything. Mm-hmm. So I decided to um, study human rights. And I loved it, like human rights and social training. I loved it. And I had this amazing human rights lawyers a professor. And she was like, you know, she was like, uh, she just really inspired me. And I decided I wanted to be a human rights lawyer. Um, she, and um, she really encouraged that. But then I, you know, went to Olympics. I got into Olympic final and that kind of took hold. But yeah, in, a lot of, in another life, I probably would have been a human rights lawyer if, um, if that hadn't happened. <laughs> And what did you pick up during your studies that you wouldn't necessarily have otherwise? God, I can't remember it so long ago. Um, I just, I think I was just really naive. You know, I just really naive. I wanted to change the world. I was like really socially conscious and stuff. And, mm. you know, I think it's because from a young age, I started reading like stuff about apartheid and, and things like all these kind of injustices I would see. And I thought, you know, I really wanted to change the world. And I thought like, and then do my, my, do my MA and do, um, having this human rights lawyer professor and she was super inspiring and just learning about human rights and, and Amnesty, Amnesty International, different, um, and Liberty and all these different, um, agencies thinking, oh, they've, you know, they can really make a change. So I, that was something that really inspired me and I wanted to do something. I wanted to, you know, make a change or whatever, but I think, you know, as you get older, you start to realize sometimes it's, mm-hmm. it's just another, it's just another kind of like organization that whether, whether they're making a change, I don't know. Um, for me now, it's almost like I want to embed that kind of grassroots aspect of helping, you know, people you know you know putting a face and helping people like help like with the cooperatives we um we work with with our shea cooperatives something we want to kind of translate to nigeria because nigeria doesn't have cooperatives um and really help women on the ground and know the women and how we're actually making a difference it's all great it's all good and great wanting to do it on a global kind of um uh, macro level but you don't really see that change until you're really kind of helping on that micro level so that's what I want you know that's what I want to do with with um with Leha so we're looking to and this was something we were going to do I was supposed to go to Nigeria in June and look at how we can kind of help and and start our cooperative in Nigeria with the shea women that with the women that help make our shea butter really interesting i by the way i love both the products the oil and the shea butter i use them and i have a horribly dry scalp so the oil has been working oh amazing oh amazing yeah um what has been the peak and pit of self-employment for you god's peak so i'm no longer self-employed so i'm employed by the business but um (laughs) Yeah, just like never knowing how much you're going to make, I suppose. Uh, for a long time, you know, where Leha and I um, only became like on payrolls uh, last year. So we would, it was really a side hustle for a long time. You know, I had, you know, two or three jobs and Leha had two or three jobs, you know, plus Leha. Um, cash flows 
insane. Um, so it was really, it's a really, it was really a struggle for us, and it still is, and it's ongoing, never stop. Um, so just the pits are probably cash flow, constant mm. running up. <laughs> you know, trying to pick, trying to store Peter and pay Paul. Is, so um, that's something we we're constantly struggling. I think that lots of businesses struggle with that. I think oh, the kind of the high points are probably things like you know. For me, it, for me, it's a lot of things. Like when somebody says, like you've just said, you, the oils helped your scalp. But when somebody says, you know, I love your packaging. I love the stuff you're doing on social media. I love the products. It's helped my eczema. Things like that just give me so much joy. Um, it's not the things like Lee Hart is like, she'll love like, you know, we got into, you know, whoever, you know, Liberty or go for whoever she that's what she gets like something massive like that that's what makes them I'm I'm like I just love it when people say the stuff that you work re- really hard on the like the packaging the kind of thankless stuff you that you know you take you work really hard on and somebody kind of sees that and says oh that's amazing your shape but your gold your Nigerian shape but is fantastic that mm. makes me happy that's a high for me mm. how would you describe success God's success. Um, yeah, so I think for me, success has changed because I've gone through so much, especially mm-hmm. being an athlete. And I didn't, and one of the things I didn't do, and I, I knew it, but I couldn't mentally, and I still do it now, mentally I couldn't, I couldn't take myself out, not appreciating the moment. I'm always like, and as an athlete, it's really hard to, because all you're thinking is the next championship. So you go to Olympics. Okay, Olympics is done. Next is the world championships. And that's how I see, and that's how I kind of see things. I'm like, yeah, okay, let's go. We got into this person place that we wanted, or we've made this kind of milestone in terms of financially. What, you know, what's our next thing? Mm -hmm. Um, So for success for me is just, enjoying it enjoying the moment enjoying like the ride it's not necessarily the destination who knows like the destination is never what you think it's going to be so yeah for me it's just enjoying the ride um and that's success for me and if I can if I can like take those moments and enjoy it I think that's how I kind of define success and just being content with splashes of happiness Mm -hmm. (laughs) you can't be happy all the time but contentment um and appreciate appreciating it as well yeah what does beauty symbolize to you just being um being happy within yourself like being being in your own skin and being um yeah like for a long time for me in terms of beauty it's very superficial Mm -hmm. um but for, for me now it's like just just being happy in my own skin and like and just saying actually you know what you're you're that you're that bit you're that bitch you're that girl so I think for me um yeah I think that's what beauty is for me really I'm not like as I said I'm not a skincare junkie um you know I love products I love our products with splashes of other people's products but you know I love the fact that we've got a few kind of amazing products um but yeah just for me it's just being content in your own skin is is what beauty is for me what rules should be broken according to you every rule (laughs) (laughs) um oh god you know thinking for yourself thinking always asks the question why 
um, even if it's an internal why, you know, why is that person marks? And, you know, for a lot of us, just and especially what's been going on now, we just take what we see in the news or what, you know, because you know, for a lot of, you know, I'm 40. So I, I remember a time when there was no internet or Twitter or whatever, Instagram. Um, and we would take, you know, what you read or what was going on in the news as, as news <laughs> and not question why are they telling me that or are they asking, you know, you know, you're not asking the questions, you know, they are they saying that because they've got a, you know, they've got their skin in the game for, for whatever reason. For me now, it's like I question everything, whether it's on Instagram, whether it's on Twitter, why somebody asks me, you know, saying that or whatever. I think it's just it's not necessarily about breaking rules, but it's about just questioning and then making up your own, making up your own decision, making up your own mind and making up your own rules. Um, I've never, I think my life has shown, I've never kind of, and my parents know that now, <laughs> I've never gone the trajectory that you're supposed to do. I've always just done what I wanted to do. Um, and for Nigerian, for a Nigerian parent, especially, and not following them, you know, not doing what they want you to do. That's like, it's that Catholic guilt, I don't know, or the Jewish guilt, whatever. My, there's definitely a Nigerian guilt. They make you, you're constantly wanting to please your parents. But the realisation that you need to please yourself, and sometimes they won't be happy, but if they love you, they'll just accept it. Um, so I've, I've always just done whatever I wanted to do, and I think that's the most important thing, because in the end, you've only got to, you've only got yourself, um, and you've got to make yourself happy, within reason. Definitely. I have one last question. No what is epic to you at the moment? Oh, my daughter's epic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. She's so epic. Sometimes I look at her and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so happy to have her. She's She just turned two on Friday. So, oh. she, um, yeah, she's epic. Um, that's epic. You know, I mean, just like the milestones that she, um, she reaches. Uh, yeah, and the kid she is. Yeah. So I think that's epic for me. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. No I've been I planning this for quite a while. <laughs> I hope it wasn't too rambly. I tend to ramble off. and um... No, it's perfect. Thank you. Thank you again so much, Abby, for taking the time to chat with me. We've been trying to organize this for quite a while, but everything has its time. I say this every single time. But each conversation is so special and I come away from every single one learning something new and my mind going on a thinking bender afterwards to understand how I have to change patterns or how I could improve on myself. Through sharing parts of her story, I could feel the strength and resilience that she's built and how that has shaped her journey. We touched on mental health and how those issues that she experienced were created within herself and not outside influence per se which is something that we all can relate to and is definitely a topic that I like to educate myself more on and want to dive into further in an upcoming episode. We create many of our internal monsters, but because many of us still feel ashamed to vocalize what is defined as a weakness, we then just internalize and make the monsters bigger instead of letting them go. We can build ourselves up and we become stronger through experiencing failure because it opens our eyes to other possibilities and how to solve problems. And that is where people separate to either being afraid of failing and always opting for safety or pushing further and choosing the road less traveled. It is always in our own hands to decide where we want to go and how that path should look like, but no one else's. Our conversation also reinforced the need for education, education about different cultures, about race, 
And in order to be a more knowledgeable human with a greater capacity to understand different perspectives and learning to question instead of accepting everything that is thrown at you. So a lot of amazing takeaways from this conversation. I truly hope that you enjoyed it. If you have any questions, slide into our DMs or email me. You'll find all the links in the show notes as always. And please remember to check out Liha Beauty. Christmas is around the corner and their products make for perfect gifts. So go, shop, order. I promise you it's worth it. Share it if you love it. And if you can take the time to review and rate it, I'd really appreciate it. And until then, see you next time.